This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Um, so we're going to be in John 1, but before we get there, I do want to say thank you for having me. Got to be here in 2018 um, when I was doing my student preaching for the pastor's college, and I thought I was going to be intimidated to come speak to a big church like this, and you guys were so welcoming. Um, and your pastors have been welcoming to me for the last five years. Um, I've built friendships with a number of them and just hold them in high regard, and Bill in particular has been a, a sweet source of uh, wisdom and counsel and care to my wife and I through a number of different seasons. So thank you for having us. It's an honor to be here. I've got my two oldest girls with me, Julia and Eliza, and my wife's at home with our two youngest, uh, Ruth and Bonnie. They're seven and 15 months. And I want to tell you about how Bonnie came into the world. So her due date was uh, December 25th of 2021. So she's 15 months. And my wife was ready to have this baby. So December 21st rolls around, and we had heard the Sunday before uh, about the midwife cocktail. I don't know if you guys know about the midwife cocktail, but my wife got wind of this thing, and she thought, hey, maybe we try this thing. So Tuesday morning, December 21st, Victoria drinks the midwife cocktail. I'm not going to tell you what's in it so you don't judge me. Um, and uh, she, she takes this cocktail down, and then we decide we're going on a little lunch date in Nashville where our doctor is. We live down in Franklin, so it's 30 minutes up the road. And we're going to have a lunch date before her appointment at 2 o'clock. Well, after lunch, we go to the park and we start walking. And sure enough, Victoria starts having these pretty consistent contractions. You know, they're meeting all the parameters they're supposed to meet. I obviously know what they are, but I'm not going to tell you because you know. Okay. So we, we call the doctor and we say like, hey, I think, uh, I, I think we might be ready to go. You know, we're an hour into all these contractions every so often. And the doctor said, hey, it's your fourth. Why don't y'all go in? So we head into St. Thomas Midtown, and I got my bag in this hand. I got my air mattress right here just strolling in like an old pro, okay? They admit us into the hospital room, and uh, they go to check Victoria to see how far along she is. And this sweet 25-year-old nurse says, I'm sorry, you're, you're just not far enough along. False alarm. So an hour later, out we walk, heads hung low, a little bit embarrassed. If you've ever had the walk of shame, you know what it's like. It's not fun for the mom. Not fun for the dad either, but especially not fun for the mom. So we head back down to Franklin, and we get home about 345. And from 345 to 530, my wife is feeling really, really bad. She is not in a good spot. So, so much so that by 530, I call my, my buddy Jason, who's a pastor at our church, lives in my neighborhood lives in my neighborhood. His wife, Judith Ann, she's a doula on, you know, spare time with four kids. And I said, Judith Ann, could you please come down and get an eye on Victoria? She's not doing very well. So Judith Ann comes over and she takes a peek at Victoria, tells her, you know, she assesses the situation, tells her what she thinks she needs to do. And she says, in the meantime, William, why don't you get a hot bath for Victoria to relax? So I get this bath drawn. And as the bath is filling up, Victoria's water breaks. So now the plan becomes, all right, hey, Really quick bath and let us head in. Well, Victoria gets in the bathtub, and things get really real really fast. Uh, so I, I'm trying to live with my wife in an understanding way, you know. Uh, and I just say, hey, baby, why don't you hop on out and let's, let's go in. Now's the time. And, and she doesn't acknowledge me. So I try for another just gentle appeal, okay. Again, no acknowledgement. 
And, and then, guys, I, I legit flip like a defensive coordinator on third and 20 when the guy's just committed a personal foul, okay? I say, Victoria, look at me. You're getting out of the bathtub, and we are going to the hospital. That's what's going to happen right now. And it's the first time she's opened her eyes in like five minutes, and she looks at me, and she goes, stop. <laughs> so Judith Ann and I lift her out of the bathtub, and she's like, man, I feel like something's happening. So I run outside, okay? I run outside, and there's a guy who lives in our neighborhood named Nathan Spradlin. He's a church member at Redeeming Grace, and he's a first responder. And so I thought, man, let's get another set of hands on deck. So I call Nathan call and die. I mean, I obviously could have done it myself, but I'm saved to serve. I want to include other people, you know. It's like Acts 2.42 stuff in action, you know. So as I'm calling Nathan, says calling dot, 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 before the call even goes through, my mother-in-law runs out and says, William, call 911. The baby's coming. So I'm like, oh, goodness. So I hit end. I call 911. And I think, hey, hey, bud, a little self-talk on the while it's ringing. Act like you've been here before. The calmer you are, the more efficient this is going to go. So, 911, what's your emergency? My wife's having a baby on her bathroom floor. What's your address? I tell them. Then they say, well, can you tell me what's going on? Like they're asking for my Christmas list. And I just flip. There's a, there's a baby coming out of my wife's body. I need you here right now. So the lady says, okay, stay on the phone with me, and I'm going to tell you what to do. So I've been gone two minutes. I've told you everything that happened in that two minutes, okay? I walk back in. With that lady on speakerphone, and when I walk into the bathroom, there's a baby laying on Victoria's chest. In the, in the two short minutes that I was gone, she pushed twice, and out came Bonnie Noel Kane. okay? And the next hour for us was like a whirlwind. Ambulances and fire trucks and stretchers and neighbors and friends. It's crazy, okay? And then, because it was a local crew, they can only take us to the local hospital. So... Just like that, it's me and Victoria and our 45-minute-old baby driving on the 30-minute quiet drive up into Nashville, and we're looking at each other just marveling what has just happened. And then after an hour in the hospital, they send us home. <laughs> and from 10 p.m. to midnight, with that baby in front of us, our family with Victoria's parents we sit around and we just, each person tells the story from their perspective. <laughs> and we soak it in and we laugh and we cry and we marvel. We were stunned. And you know what we did the next day? We started telling everybody that we know. Dude, you're not going to believe this. Julia says, Daddy, can I tell the art teacher? We're at the park. Hey, can I tell the lady at the park? Right? <laughs> yes, tell them. This is good news, and good news is meant to be shared. It's been 15 months since Bonnie came, and nearly every week I tell at least one person that story. <laughs> and friends, at its very core, in its purest sense, this is how evangelism works. Think about it. We experience something, or, or should I say someone, who is greater than anyone else. And he has done something for us that is more wonderful than anything else. And it culminates in us joyfully telling other people about him. This is what we're going to see in John 1, 35 to 51. It's a wonderful passage about the first disciples finding and following Jesus. Now, I do want to make clear up front, um, 
this passage is not about evangelism in particular. Nearly every paragraph in the Gospel of John is written so that John's readers might see the unique identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and they would believe in him and find life in his name. This passage tells us how that happened for these first followers of Jesus. But here's what it does for us in relation to evangelism. It gives us a picture of how it's always worked. It gives us a picture of how it worked in the very beginning. It's the same thing you're going to see in the book of Acts. It gives us a picture of how it works even today. So the passage is made up of six short scenes over the span of two days, and each one is going to show us that evangelism is far simpler than we think and far more natural than we think. So here's how we're going to approach it. In the first half of the message, we're going to look at each of these six scenes, making a few observations as we go. And in the second half of the message, we're going to identify three basic principles of evangelism that each of us can apply to our lives. So let's now read God's Word. I do want to say it was an honor to hear you guys read the Word of God in all those languages. I'm off script now. I need to be careful because Zach gave me a hard warning on 45 minutes max. Um, Y'all know that there are a billion people on planet Earth that don't have this book. One billion. 1,600 people groups. The fact that we have this book in our lap is an enormous gift from God. And there is nothing more important than we will do than read God's word right now. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. So John 1, 35 to 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you're Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, so scene one, verses 35 and 36 begin by saying, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So in this first scene, we're introduced to John the Baptist, 
the one sent to prepare the way for Jesus. By this time, John had become increasingly popular. He's gaining a substantial following. And on this particular day, when Jesus happened to walk by, John, who is a trustworthy guy, gets the attention of his disciples, and he looks at Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, quick aside. As we go, I want you to pay attention to all the different things that Jesus has called, all the different ways he's referred to. It's astonishing. But what's also important to note is that this is not the first time that John had made some claim about Jesus. Just the day before, John sees Jesus walking by, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He goes on to say, This is the Son of God. This is the one who will baptize with the Spirit of God. These are enormous claims about Jesus Christ. So here's a credible man who on some level knew the truth about Jesus and was enamored with him. And more than once, he candidly told his students the truth about Jesus. This is the Lamb of God. And on this occasion, when he did, verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, we know from verse 40 that one of these guys is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and almost all commentators agree that the other guy is John, the author of the gospel. So that's scene one. Scene two, verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So when Jesus sees these guys following him, he just asks them straight up, What are you seeking? What are you boys looking for? What are you guys after? These guys have quite an opportunity, don't they? And what do they say? Where are you staying? I, I've always just laughed at this. Really, where are you staying? Here's what it reminds me of. You know when like, you're in high school and you're crushing on a girl and you're just trying to like, get the conversation going a little bit and you don't know what to say? Anybody ever had that moment? Some of y'all, not, not many, judging by the laughter. I'll expose myself. Uh, and you're just willing to say anything just to get the combo going. Ah, what, um, what's, your, what's, your class, what's your class schedule looking like tomorrow? As if you care, right? It seems like these guys are doing that with Jesus. They're just dipping their toe in the water, right, before they go all in. They, they've got all, I mean, John's making these messianic claims about him, and they're like, hey, where are you, where are you staying? Um, <laughs> But Jesus kindly humors him, doesn't he? He knows just how to interact with each person. Verse 39, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour, 4 p.m. So just think about this with me. When you read the Bible, especially when you read narrative, read it, read it imaginatively. These guys go with Jesus, Okay? And they remain with him. Same word you're going to see in chapter 15, abide in me. They, they go and they stay with him. And what do they talk about? What do they ask him? What does he say to them? How does he say it? Just what an honor for these two guys. We're never told, but here's what we are told. Their time with Jesus was so significant that they went all in with Jesus Christ. They concluded this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. 
This is the one that their scriptures promise who would deliver them and lead them. In their short time with Jesus, they became convinced of his identity. That scene too. And then they did what came most natural to them. They went and told someone they loved. Scene three. After being with Jesus, Andrew couldn't not tell someone. Verse 41 and 42a. Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Now, a few things here. Don't miss all the finding and bringing in the passage. It's happening everywhere, and it's happening very naturally. Okay? Next, notice that it doesn't appear that Andrew has a very difficult time getting Simon to Jesus, does he? It's another trustworthy guy talking to somebody he loves. And then last, notice that when Simon does get to Jesus, Jesus knows just what to do with him. He's ready for him. 42b. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called, so, or sorry, so you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus is ready for Simon. He's got plans for him from the, from the get-go. New name, new task, new role. Andrew and John's relationship got Simon to Jesus. But it was Jesus who knew how to close the deal. That's, that's scene three. Okay, brings us to scene four. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. All right, here's, here's the great thing about joining Jesus on mission. You ready? He's, he's on mission himself. Even when we're not, okay, even when we're not in the game, even when we're not on offense, Jesus is on offense. He loves to seek and save the lost. It's what he loves to do. And on this occasion, without anyone's help, he finds Philip. And again, we're not told what they talk about. We're not told how long they talk. But here's what we are told. Their time together was so transformative for Philip that he concludes, according to verse 45, that Jesus is the one whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Like with Andrew and John, it was when Philip spent time with Jesus that he became convinced of who he really is. That's scene four. And just like it was with the others, Philip couldn't keep it to himself. He had to tell a friend. Scene five, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. So most scholars seem to think that Nathanael is the personal name of the disciple Bartholomew who's listed with Philip in the other three Gospels. Um, and here, like elsewhere, Philip, who seems to be a trustworthy friend, goes to his buddy with some big claims. And I want you to just think about this, okay? When you, when you get to this stuff, you got to slow down, okay? And you got to just let the weight of what's being said in the Bible set on you, okay? Listen to what Philip says to Nathaniel. Think about it. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. What is he claiming? Here is a young man who is looking at his buddy and he's saying this, we have found the guy that the Bible is about. Are you kidding me? 
That's who we're talking about. The one that history is about. He's here. Notice that none of these guys are shrinking from the enormity of the claims about Jesus. Okay, but like sometimes happened with us, Nathaniel gives a little pushback. 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Nazareth's just a little podunk town of 2,000 people in Galilee. And Nathaniel is from Cana in Galilee. So maybe you got a little intervillage rivalry going on here. That's what D.A. Carson suggests. I'll take his word for it. And so Nate throws some shade on Nazareth. Don't, don't be surprised, friend, if you're, if you're sharing Christ and you get a little pushback, no matter how silly it might seem. Don't, don't be surprised if that comes. It's normal for that to come. Okay, but let's learn from Philip. Look at what he does. He, he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't offer an apologetic on the merits of Nazareth. He just says to his buddy, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come check him out? He's starting to sound like his master already. That's scene five. And just like Jesus knew how to handle each of the other guys, Jesus knew just how to handle Nathaniel. Scene six, verses 47 to 49. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I love this. Instead of being frustrated by Nate's stubbornness, by his hard-headedness, Jesus doesn't even acknowledge that at this point, does he? He dignifies him. There's no deceit in you. You're not playing games. I like that. Jesus knows how to handle each person. Nathaniel said to him, verse 48, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> Please excuse me. I'm at a great breakfast this morning. I didn't think I was going to burp when I'm preaching. Uh, thank you for the breakfast and the hospitality. I meant to say that in my opening comments. Quick aside, uh, y'all's church is the most hospitable church on planet Earth. And your, your pastor and his wife served the mess out of me and my family, so thank you. Um, I wanted to say that up front, and I didn't, so forgive me. All right, let's get back in. Verse 49. Nathanael answers him after Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Well, that seemed pretty easy. What's, what's going on with that? Why, why all of a sudden does this guy who was kind of stubborn and distanced from Jesus make some of the biggest claims in the entire passage about Jesus? Uh, well, certainly to some degree, the superna supernatural knowledge of Jesus is on display right here. But I think there may be more than that going on. Um, according to the Old Testament, Micah 4.4, Zechariah 3.10, a fig tree symbolized the future messianic kingdom that God was going to usher in. And we know from rabbinic lit literature, that rabbinic literature, I was a PE major, you don't say that a lot, um, that... Oftentimes, Jews would pray under a fig tree in anticipation and hope for God's kingdom. So it's very possible that Jesus, by addressing Nate the way he did, he's saying, hey, I know what's in your heart. I know what you've been praying for. I know you've been praying for God's kingdom. Here's what I want you to know. I've seen you praying prayers for God's kingdom. I've come to bring in that kingdom. I've come to be the king of that kingdom, which makes sense of Nathaniel's response, which comes right out of 2 Samuel 7, one of the biggest 
messianic passages of the Old Testament that says that there's going to be a king that comes from David's line, a son who reigns on his throne forever. And that's exactly what Nathaniel says about Jesus. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then in verses 50 and 51, Jesus just pours fuel on the fire of his faith. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I wish we could go into all this in more detail, but Jesus is saying, you boys ain't seen nothing yet. And then he takes on this title from Daniel 7 to be the, the, the Son of Man, the one with authority over all the nations, to have an everlasting kingdom. And he says he's going to be the one from Genesis 28 that's going to connect heaven to earth. Jesus claims all that. That's scene six. It's all stunning stuff. Philip, the credible friend, tells Nate about Jesus, and after a little pushback, Nate came and saw for himself. And when he did, Jesus knew just how to address him. He knew just how to close the deal. So that's, that's the passage. Those are the scenes. John the Baptist beheld Jesus. And when he did, he told his students about him. Those students went to go and be with Jesus. And they were so enamored with him that they couldn't not talk about him. They brought somebody to him. Jesus goes and finds Philip. And Philip is so enthralled with Jesus that he has to go and tell a buddy. And in every case, every time somebody came to Jesus, Jesus knew just what to do with them. He knew just what they needed. He knew just how to close the deal. So what I want to do now is to distill this down to some principles for us. What can we learn from this passage about evangelism? What can we learn about how it works? What can we learn that will make it more natural and more doable and more fruitful for us? Three simple principles. Number one, evangelism begins by being with Jesus. Evangelism begins by being with Jesus. It begins by beholding the Lord. It's where it starts always. Did you notice how in this passage, before any of these guys found their buddies and brought them to Jesus, they were first with Jesus themselves? And then after having been with him, nothing was more natural than to go and tell other people about it. Right? It's like seeing a baby born on your bathroom floor. You can't not talk about it. And because they had been with Jesus, did you notice that when it, when it came time to share, they had plenty to say. This, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. This is the King of Israel. This is the one the Bible's about. They got that from being with Jesus. And friends, if we want to be fruitful in evangelism, this is where we begin. We begin by being with Jesus. Now, surely in a room this size, one of you guys is throwing out the yellow penalty flag, thinking, yeah, but dude, these guys got to, like, legit be with Jesus. They got to look him in the eyes. They got to touch him, feel him, see him, right? We don't get to do that, okay? True, and it will be sweet one day when we're with Jesus, won't it? That day's coming. But here's what we have that these guys didn't have. You ready? These guys were only sort of getting to know the person of Jesus. And their understanding of him was incomplete at best. They didn't know he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. They didn't know that in him dwells the whole fullness of deity bodily. 
They didn't know that this was the word that created the world. They're getting to know who he was. Tell you what else they didn't know. They didn't yet know the work he was going to do. Man. They didn't know that this son, this lamb, this king, this Christ, this one that the Bible is about, they didn't know that he was going to become for them the lamb who was slain for their sins. John could have known it in part. The rest had no clue. That this Christ would be crucified so that they might be forgiven. That this, this king might be crushed so that their sins might be overlooked. That this one who the scriptures are about, he would live perfectly and he would die in their place and he would rise from the dead to defeat death forever and secure their life. They didn't know this. Friends, we know that about Jesus Christ. We know that about him. He has done that for you. He has done that for me. And day by day, we have an invitation from him to come to him and to behold him in his word. To get to know who he is, to understand what it is that he's done for us. And friends, the more this gets into our guts, the more it should make us marvel. And the harder it should be for us to keep quiet. I'll never forget uh, being in Turkey, 2010. Me and a few buddies went over there to talk about how we could maybe use golf as like a business platform to get some missionaries over there. And we meet this missionary in Istanbul, and we're talking to him, and we're pretty new Christians and enthralled by all the Lord's doing. And so we asked this guy about like best evangelistic practices, like what, what works for you? Here's what this guy said. Never forget it. He says, well, I wake up every morning, and I open my Bible. And I get my eyes on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for me. And then I get so excited about him that I go and tell people about it. And if I'm not excited, I repent. Uh, two things happened to me that day. Number one, I questioned if I was a Christian. Uh, <laughs> And then number two, I began to understand that evangelism begins not with strategies and obligations. It begins by beholding Jesus. And it has always been this way. That, that preacher that Jake read about, Charles Spurgeon, said it this way 150 years ago. Man, may this be true for us. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it in your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you're like one that has found honey. You call others to taste of its sweetness. And you're like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus. And you are anxious that they should find him too. Friend, this is the most important step in evangelism. Being with Jesus, beholding who he is, beholding what he's done. Do that each day until he becomes precious to you. Everything else flows from this. And friend, let me just speak to you real quick. If you're here and Jesus is not yet precious to you. 
I haven't been to this church in five years, so it's hard for me to offer a formal welcome to you. But here's what I will say. I am so glad you're here. And if, if you're here and Jesus isn't yet precious to you, here's what I want to say to you. Don't you worry about evangelism yet. We'll talk about that later. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to open up this book. And I want you to explore who he is. And I want you to consider what he's done. And as he becomes more and more precious to you, I think what happened to these disciples will probably start to happen to you. You'll start to want to talk about him. And if he is precious to you, then day after day, you keep beholding him in his word. You enjoy his love more and more and more. And then you talk about what you love most. That's step one. Um, That's not all there is to evangelism. After these guys were with Jesus, did you notice what they did? They very naturally went and found a friend, and they told that friend about Jesus. The next principle of evangelism that's clearly implied in this passage is that if we want to be fruitful in our evangelism, we've got to befriend those who don't know Christ. We've got to have credible relationships with those who don't yet know Jesus. In in my experience, this is a a non-negotiable of consistently fruitful evangelism. And it's, it's easy to overlook this, right? It's easy to overlook this. And I've noticed even in my own life, the more that you grow as a Christian, the more that you mature as a Christian, there's a temptation for your entire friend roster to be filled with other Christians. And of course, we're to be devoted to the fellowship. This is to form our primary community. It must form our primary community. But if we want to be fruitful in evangelism, we have to have some credible relationships with non-Christians. Otherwise, we're going to have no one to introduce to Jesus. Um, A a great illustration of this comes from an old navigator named Walt Henriksen. Walt uh, gave his life to making disciples, and he wrote a little book called Disciples Are Made, Not Born. And in that book, he tells the story of discipling a college freshman named Joe. And so he goes to check on Joe and uh, asks Joe how he's doing. And Joe's excelling in Bible studies, excelling in prayer. He's got great fellowship with some Christian buddies on campus. And then Walt asks Joe, well, how are you doing with evangelism? Is that part of your life? And not only could Joe not step up to the plate and say, yeah, there's some fruit in evangelism, he was actually terrified by the thought of evangelism. Scared him. So here was Walt's advice to him. He said, well, how many non-Christian friends do you have? And Joe said, well, maybe two or three. And Walt said, well, Joe, over the next four weeks, I want you to get to know as many students on campus as you can. Let's set our goal at 50 students. You don't have to witness to them. You don't have to tell them you're a Christian. All you have to do is get to know them. Stop by the rooms and chat with them. Play ping pong with them. Go to athletic events with them. Get meals with them. So one month later, Walt comes back to check on Joe, and he asks him all his questions. How's it going with your Bible reading? How's it going with your prayer? How's it going with your fellowship? How's it going with evangelism? You know what Joe says to him? I've led six students to Christ. And here's how Walt summarizes what Joe found. He says, he had discovered for himself that if he became friends with the publicans and sinners, the Lord naturally provided opportunities for him to share his faith. Witnessing then begins by establishing friendships with non-Christians. Friends, if we want to see fruit in our evangelism, we need credible friendships with those who don't yet know Christ. So who are your people? Who are the ones in your life that need to be found 
and brought to Jesus. If you've already got those relationships in place, great. As the Lord brings opportunities, don't be afraid to introduce Christ in those relationships. Don't be timid, right? What your friend needs, they need more than anything else, Jesus Christ. What they are most thirsty for is him. And in some ways, if you're like the God person in their life, it's weird if you don't talk about it. Truly. So don't be afraid to bring them up. And then if you're here and you don't really have any non-Christian friends, let's not worry about evangelism yet. Here's your application for today. Make some non-Christian friends. Right? Join a club at school. Get on an intramural team. Start volunteering somewhere consistently in the community. Invite your neighbors over for dinner. At work, slow down and look a coworker in the eyes and ask some good questions. Invite them to go out to lunch. Build a friendship. And as you do that, if you keep beholding the Lord and being with the Lord day after day after day, it's only a matter of time before the Lord will lead you to our last application point, which is this. Connect them to the closer. Connect them to the closer. Closer is a baseball term. I'm a sports guy, by the way. So you're not, I know y'all get like D.A. Carson in this pulpit, and, you know, it's not what you got today. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm about to quote Joe Girardi, former Yankee manager, so watch out. Uh, closer is a baseball term for the pitcher you bring in during the final inning to finish the game. This is the guy who protects the lead. Okay, this is the guy who seals the deal. He finishes things off. Best closer ever is a guy named, anybody? That's right, Mo, Mariano Rivera, Yankee pitcher. Um, and here's what Joe Girardi said about Mariano Rivera. There are teams that worry about closers, how they're going to do from year to year. We don't ever worry about it. We just say, oh, it's Mo," and then we work backwards from there. So here's what the Yankees knew. The Yankees during those years knew that if they could get inner Sandman by Metallica playing on the loudspeaker as Mo trotted out to that mound, the game was in good shape. He was going to finish things off. And, and here's what this passage tells us, friends. In our evangelism, we have a closer. Jesus Christ is our closer. Our main job in evangelism is not to be eloquent or profound or impressive or unstumpable. Our main goal in evangelism is to connect people to Jesus Christ. Now, I do want to say this because I know we've got some theologues in here who are now throwing out their penalty flag. You're thinking, yeah, well, he's also our starter in our middle relief. I agree, okay? But hang in there with me. Did you notice that in this passage, even as valuable as friends were, And friends are valuable. It was when each of these guys had an encounter with Jesus that everything changed. It was when they got around Jesus himself that they were floored. And it was just a matter of time before they trusted him with their whole life. And even though we can't bring someone to shake his hand or meet him in person, we can still connect people to Jesus Christ, friends. He's alive. And we can know him. And so let me give you two ways that you can connect your friends to Jesus Christ, that you can connect them to the closer. First, we connect people to Jesus by connecting them to his word. Man. Guys, this is the word of God. It is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the vision of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book has the information in it that makes us wise for salvation. 
It has the good news in it that is the gospel, that is the power of God for salvation. This, this word accomplishes stuff. It does not return void. It is a supernatural book. When this book speaks, God speaks. I'll never forget being a 19-year-old in my dorm room by myself late at night, and I opened this book to read it for the first time in my life. And it didn't take long for this book to start reading me. And I became convinced over time by the supernatural power and grace of God that Jesus really is who he says he is. And he really has born the wrath of God on my behalf. He's died in my place for my sins, and he really is alive forever, and we can know him. That happened by reading the Bible. Friends, Jesus still reveals himself through his word. So if you want to connect your friend to Christ, let me tell you one way you can do it. You can encourage them to read the Bible. And even better, you could read the Bible with them. Open up to one of the Gospels. Slowly work through it. Explain it to them as you go. And see if Jesus doesn't close the deal. So the first way you can connect people to Jesus is by connecting them, uh, connecting them to his word. The second way you can connect people to the closer is to connect them to the body of Christ, the church. And, and I'm, I'm, honestly, the reason I wanted to preach this sermon is because where we're on the calendar. We're two weeks before Easter. And it's such a sweet time for this application for you guys. I know Easter's a Super Bowl for Cornerstone. Um, y'all have a, another sports analogy. I got non-sports people laughing at me. Sorry. Um, y'all have a sweet opportunity in the next couple of weeks. When's the last time that you thought about what your non-Christian friend was experiencing when they walked through these doors on a Sunday morning? You ever thought about that? It's a great thing to think about. When the call to worship is read, the living Christ is inviting your friend to come. When we sing songs that are filled with the gospel, they're hearing the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. They're seeing the worth of Jesus Christ as we celebrate him. As you give, there's a demonstration that Jesus is more valuable than the most valuable earthly things. When your pastors pray, there's a demonstration that the Lord bends his ear to hear our prayers. When the word is preached, Jesus himself addresses us. Do you know how, how often, how normal it is for somebody to come to a service like this for the first time and to say, I, I felt like he was talking directly to me. Or to come to VFC and, and they've never been before and they're scared to be there. And they say, I felt like he was talking specifically to me. We can connect people to the closer by inviting them to church. Um, one of my best buddy's dads went to be with the Lord about five years ago. And just before his funeral, a man from the community comes to my buddy and he says to him, uh, Bud, you know your dad invited me to Bible study every year for 20 years. And I said no every year for 20 years. And finally, that next August, he calls me. He says, Matt, Matt, are you going to come to Bible study this year? And I said, Dad, gummit, Sam, are you, you going to ask me this every year? And he says, yeah, I am. And then that guy looks at my buddy and says, bud, I'm a Christian because of your daddy. Sam wasn't a theologian. He was a business guy. He was the president of the country club. 
But here's what he understood. He understood that he could do what Andrew and John did. He could do what Philip did. He can say, come and see. And, and you might be like me. You might be a PE major. Okay? You might not be the sharpest tool in the shed. But here's what we can say. Hey, I, I know Easter's coming up. And I'm not sure if you have anywhere to go. But I'd, I'd love for you to come and sit with me. It would be a joy for you to join me. Who, who knows how Jesus might enter into that equation? Who, who knows how he might speak to your friend? Who knows how he might close the deal? Friends, this is certainly not all there is to know about evangelism, but it gives us a good picture of how it's always worked. And if we want to see fruit in our evangelism, it's a good start, and it's a doable start. It, it begins by being with Jesus, and then we befriend those who don't yet know him, and then by exposing them to God's word and God's church, we connect them to the closer and we watch them work. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have moved in the hearts of so many of us in this room and you have exposed us to Jesus Christ. You have called us out of darkness and into light. You have allowed us to see the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have seen and beheld and believed that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He is the one the Bible is about. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that you've revealed that to us. Lord, we pray that you would just compel us by the power of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that we saw at work last week in Acts 2, to go out and share this good news, to introduce others to Jesus Christ. We pray that you give us fruit in that effort. I pray especially for Cornerstone, Lord, as Easter approaches. So encouraging to see people that you're already adding to their number. And I just pray um, that they would have a hunger for more of it. I pray that this Easter even more would be added because they'd come to know you as you really are. So, Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We honor you. Receive our worship now in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.